Hello everyone, I'm Tom Denford, co-founder of ID.coms. Welcome to episode 28 of Media Snack Meets. Recorded each week in New York, we get to meet the individuals and organizations doing great work to inspire success and drive change within the global media and marketing industry. In each episode, we find out what is behind that success, what it takes to make change in the industry, and what the rest of us can learn from that experience. My guest for this episode is Dr. Augustine Fu, the independent ad fraud researcher and founder of Marketing Science Consulting Group based here in New York. Is ad fraud really a big problem? Why hasn't the industry solved the problem yet? And why do the estimates around ad fraud just keep getting bigger? Research by the World Federation of Advertisers in 2018 suggested that ad fraud will become the second biggest source of income for organised crime. Ad fraud has become an industrial, enterprise-scale criminal activity. So, who should we believe and what can we really do about it? I first met Dr. Fu a few years ago. We both attended a meeting at the United Nations building in New York to discuss transparency in the media industry. And at the time, he seemed to me to be the only person in the room who really knew what he was talking about. And not surprisingly, being a scientist, Dr. Fu approaches the problem with research and data. He says, marketers, stop distracting yourself, focus on ad fraud first. In this interview, we get back to basics to understand what ad fraud is and isn't, how it works, and what marketers really should be doing about it. Plus, we learn more about what drives Dr. Fu with such persistence to educate the industry, which has really been slow to react to this growing menace. To paraphrase a well-known US advertiser, The next 45 minutes could save you 45% or more on your digital advertising budget. Please enjoy this highly insightful interview with Dr. Augustine Fu. Welcome to Media Snack Meets. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. So I'm really, really interested in the whole ad fraud discussion. I know you've been very generous with your time to me and to the industry and trying to educate us on this. I want to start right at the basics. Okay, so... Just to clear up, if there's any confusion, what exactly is ad fraud? When we talk about ad fraud, what does it actually mean? What are we talking about? It's very simple. Uh, Digital ad fraud is basically ads being shown to bots and not humans. And bots are basically software programs that bad guys use to repeatedly load web pages or repeatedly load the ads themselves. So in the early days of the internet, ads were shown on big websites like yahoo.com. So typically when a person goes to a website and they view a page, the ads load. So a lot of marketers think that's still the case. But now with these long tail sites that you've never heard of, right, it's not the big New York Times or Wall Street Journal, it's some long tail site like a blog or you know a viral site or whatever. No one's ever heard of that. And uh, so there's probably not a lot of humans going there. But yet they're selling billions and billions of ad impressions uh, into the programmatic exchanges. How are they able to do that? It's basically they bought all the traffic and the traffic is generated by bots or software programs, not by humans visiting web pages. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So and what does that mean for a marketer with a hundred million dollar media budget, let's say, what does that actually mean for them? What's what's happening to their money and where is it going? Their money is going into digital media uh, and they're going for reach and frequency, just like they did in TV. Uh, but unlike in the physical world where there are actual physical limits to you know, how many TV spots you have, how many TV shows you have, or even how many billboards you can put by the side of the highway, 
In digital, because it's all virtual, uh, the bad guys can literally create unlimited inventory, right? And what they do is they create uh, fake websites to run ads. They create fake mobile apps to run ads. So all of those are designed to just run ad tech, right? Little short pieces of code that allow them to run uh, digital ads. So when they do that, uh, it's all generated out of thin air. It's not, again, a human visiting a web page or using a mobile app. So in that case, for a brand marketer, uh, their dollars are going towards ads that are never seen by people. So there isn't even the branding effect, let alone you know uh, people clicking through or direct marketing or sales or anything. It is completely wasted. And all that money is going to either the ad tech middlemen or straight into the pocket of the bad guys. Tell me about the bad guys then. So when we, we, you know, we're all familiar with the idea of hackers from remote lands, you know, in dark, deep dungeons of servers and things like that. So what, what actually do these people look like? What, well, who these are days, they? Uh, these days, I'd like to say, um, you know, bots don't come from Russia anymore. They don't have to come from China anymore. They come from data centers right here in the U.S. Mm. Because these days it's so easy to create bots, right? These are software programs that load web pages that even script Which kiddies, are perfectly legitimate things, right? These tools to create they fake traffic, be. they just misused. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So the tools are uh, like these browsers, uh, software programs are typically used by web developers to test their websites, right? By loading it, by doing various stuff on it. But again, these open source tools are being abused by the bad guys, right? And so they're just used to repeatedly load ads. So basically the bad guys, there's not a whole bunch of hackers doing this, right? There could be only a few hackers needed because they manage vast botnets. You can think of everyone else as kind of renting time on those botnets because you can say, I need you know 100,000 page views on this website because the website was paying for the traffic. So just basically, it's one line of code. You instruct the botnet, go load pages on this website 100,000 times. So there's only, there only needs to be a few bot masters that manage these botnets. And then there's traffic sellers who basically are middlemen, right? They're brokers, they're traffic sellers that will happily sell traffic to any website that wants to buy it, right? And so those websites will now have traffic to then generate the ad impressions so then they say, oh, well, here's my inventory. They can now uh, sell it through the ad exchanges. And then the exchanges sell it to the agencies that buy low-cost media because they're really addicted to low CPM, large quantities of display ads, right, and that kind of stuff. And then the agencies will then tell their clients, oh, look, we got you hundreds of billions of ads this month, and we even got you a lower CPM for it. Right. You used to have to pay legitimate publishers like Hearst, Condé, Meredith, and so on and so forth, pretty high CPMs. And that's correct because they actually have writers, journalists, editors that create the content, and that's not cheap. So they have to sell it at higher CPMs. But with the rise of programmatic technology, we've seen CPMs go down, and that's because the bad guys can create infinite quantities out of thin air. It doesn't cost them much right? because now they're even renting servers on AWS. So, you know, in that case, they don't have cost of content. Uh, they don't have to buy server hardware. They can just pay as they go in cloud compute centers, right, and that kind of stuff. So it costs them very little, so they can sell it at very low CPMs. And that's become the drug of a lot of the agency media buyers. They want to buy more quantity at lower cost, 
And because they're actually gauged on that, they're judged on on that. And a lot of them, a lot of the agencies and some of the marketers think that that's ROI. Oh, yeah, we got you more quantity at lower average cost. That's not ROI, right? That has nothing to do with business outcomes. Because now when you're buying 10 times the quantity, maybe at one tenth the CPM, most of it's fraud. Because there literally aren't all those humans sitting around loading web pages and causing, you know, all those ad impressions. We far outstripped that years and years ago. Thank you for the explanation. I mean, what you're saying is that also this ladders back to the responsibility of the marketer, right? Which is something which on on our Media Snack show, which listeners, if you want to check out on YouTube, just look up look up Media Snack, which is a, a weekly show. You know that uh, David and I do, and we talk about that a lot. It's the responsibility of the marketer often to set the right brief. The risk is that they've become conditioned and addicted to lowering price. And that seems like a win. And that's been perhaps the root of all of this kind of success, if you like, of ad fraud and the bad guys is because maybe a marketer's, the advertiser's obsession with finding cheaper and cheaper without really necessarily putting in place the guardrails to test the quality or the impact of that money, that investment. And maybe then agencies in response are doing whatever they can to find cheaper and cheaper inventory every day. Yeah. Is that leading them into these, you know, to maybe not ask enough questions? Do you feel that agencies are not doing enough to ask, to challenge on the exchanges? Absolutely. And to me, it boils down to um, basically conflicts of interest or, you know, where their incentives lie. So the agencies always want to buy more quantity, you know, and the more budget that they handle for the client, the more they make, right? So it has to do with quantity. It really has, has nothing to do with transparency or uh, quality or business outcomes. The agency's objective, and I'm not talking about the individual people there. I'm talking about the holding companies and the agencies as companies. Their objective is to maximize their own revenues and profits so that their stock price goes up. So unless the marketer uh, asks them and asks hard questions, they're not going to voluntarily do this, right? It's not their job. So it really goes back to the responsibility of the marketer. Unfortunately, too many marketers don't know what to ask. And it doesn't help when they get fraud detection reports that say, oh, everything's fine. It's 0.53%. Don't worry. Keep buying. It's not because the fraud is low. It's because the fraud detection technologies didn't catch it. So for the marketers, they need to actually ask hard questions and also look at their own analytics because in that they'll start to see, okay, there should be a direct correlation between their own analytics and business outcomes. And too many marketers are not focused on business outcomes. I'll tell you, I've I've encountered many brand marketers that will say, oh, well, because our sales don't happen online, they happen in offline and grocery stores and stuff. We can't track the performance anyway, so we're just going to do this reach and frequency stuff and maybe brand lift studies. But um, that is so far removed from you know the actual business outcomes, and it provides a convenient cover for the fraud to continue. So I would characterize it as either the marketers don't know enough to really push the envelope on this, or they're just not asking enough questions, and they're assuming that the agency took care of it. But fraudsters love that, right? So um, they love the opportunity to create more impressions out of thin air and even charge you lower CPM because that just means they make more money. And there are certain industry verticals that are particularly at risk and particularly targeted by the bad guys. So I'll name two, financial services and the movie entertainment industry. 
So financial services, they tend to do a lot of branding, right? They want reach and frequency. Uh, and sometimes they have to do a lot of that marketing before year end or year end of quarter because they have to hit their number, right? So when they have to spend a lot of money and get as much reach as possible, that's the ideal scenario for the bad guys. Because again, there aren't enough humans to generate that many ad impressions. So the only way you can get that much inventory is if you create it uh, fraudulently. And bad guys can do that, you know, till the cows come home, right? And same thing with the movie and entertainment business, right? Imagine if they have a movie launch date and they have to promote that movie. They have to spend all their budget before launch date to maximize their exposure. So the bad guys can now generate unlimited quantity to absorb all of that budget. And they love the fact that the movie marketers uh, have to spend it all by a certain date. We will get into you know your specific advice for marketers in these kind of scenarios. And I, I think I asked you a question a few weeks ago on Twitter, actually, because... And just sticking with the kind of the basics of this for the moment, just to, so people understand, A, how big is this problem? That's kind of one part of the question. And also the question that we frequently get asked... And I was teaching a class at NYU Stern like a few weeks ago, and I was talking in, you know, my very primitive way of understanding relative to your deep knowledge in this area about this is a problem facing the industry. And this is to the kind of a marketing class at, at NYU. And somebody rightfully put their hand up and said, where does the money actually go? Like, how does it get out of the system? Because if you talk about bad guys and hackers, is there is there like a, a tap that you can turn off somewhere, right, where you can just see it's illegal and let's just stop yeah. bad money flowing out of the system? So if you're a bad guy or you're organized crime or whoever it is that's benefiting from this, how does the money get out? How does that get into somebody's bank account? That's a common question, um, and advertisers and marketers don't pay hackers, right? They don't pay them directly. They never see them. So basically, the marketer pays their agency, sometimes in large chunks, like here's $100 million to spend for the year, right? And the agency's job is to go spend it all. So then they're looking around for as much quantity to, uh, to buy as possible, right? So then they look at multiple ad exchanges, um, and then they would say, oh, well, we'll give, you know, X tens of millions over here, another 50 million over there, whatever. So they spend it with the exchanges. The exchanges, these ad exchanges have hundreds of thousands of sites that are part of the exchange, right? They're kind of like Wall Street where you have buyers and sellers and they do the auction and all that kind of stuff. But they have hundreds of thousands of sites that are part of that exchange, which means they run ad tech from that exchange to show ads, so then when those sites run the ads, uh, the exchange has a count of how many ads they uh, showed and a typical CPM. So then the exchange would pay each individual site owner. And there might be owners that own multiple sites that are part of that, right? So uh, they pay each individual site after the ads are shown. And each individual site, getting back to what we talked about in terms of source traffic, right? If those are long tail sites that don't have a lot of humans, most of their traffic, if not all of it, is sourced traffic, which means they bought it all, mm -hmm. which means it's generated by bots and software programs, right? So in those cases, um, they would then these sites would then pay the traffic sellers who sold them the traffic, and then some of those traffic sellers are probably just resellers themselves, right? They bought it wholesale from someplace, right? They bought the traffic wholesale from someplace, and now they're marking it up and selling it retail to the site. So there are many, many traffic brokers. So there could be unknown numbers of layers there in terms of traffic sellers and brokers. And then ultimately, like I said before, they're kind of renting time on that botnet. 
because you don't need 100,000 machines for your particular site. You just need a portion of it, right? Because that site just bought 100,000 page views from you. So it's almost like renting a bit of time on that big botnet. So the botnet, you know, it's almost like a self-serve thing, right? You can even go to Fiverr.com and find all these people selling you that are happy to sell you traffic or just Google the term buy real traffic online or buy valid traffic, right? And you'll find hundreds and hundreds of people selling traffic. And they'll even tell you, oh, well, our traffic is high quality because it's going to get by all of these fraud detection technology companies because they have actually A-B tested their bots and they know for sure it gets by every single fraud detection company. And I love this idea that it's considered valid traffic, even though it's non-human. It's considered valid because the system validates it, right? Because yeah, it's just it, it's, it's bypassing valid, all of the checks. Yes, valid doesn't mean human. Yeah. It just means valid, which means the fraud detection companies could not detect it as invalid. But valid doesn't mean human. And there's a lot of other problems in that. We, we won't get too technical about that. But, you know, a lot of the data is simply not measurable. Because some of the more advanced bots, or I would say any bot worth its salt, is going to block a detection tag. Just like humans block ads, the bots are not going to let the detection JavaScript tag load because they don't want to get caught. So why wouldn't a bot block those detection tags? So that leaves you to wonder, what the heck are they actually detecting? If they are detecting something, it's probably a bot that's not smart enough to not load their tag. Good, we're getting te technical now. So you've just reached the limit of my technical understanding, I think. I'm just going to, let me bring you back because my question is, how do you know so much about this? That's what I'm kind of interested in. How do you, how do you become, I mean, because you're regarded rightly as one of the preeminent kind of ad fraud researchers and a kind of real go-to voice for marketers in the industry wanting to understand about this. So how, what's your journey then? How did you, how did you get to become one of the world's experts on ad fraud? Well, I, I kind of fell into it because I'm a digital marketer, right? And I have been for 23 years. And when I left Omnicom in 2012 um, and started, you know, doing uh, projects for clients and stuff like that and started looking at my own analytics, I started seeing really strange things like 30% click-through rates. Right? As a marketer that's been doing digital for a very long time, click-through rates on banner ads should be 0.1%, right? And Google has years and years of studies that show it's in that order of magnitude, Click-through rates on search ads are probably 1%. You're not going to see 5%, 10%, 30% click-through rates on ads because humans are just not that interested in your damn ad, right? But yet we saw that in the data. So I started asking, okay, well, how is this possible? You know, why are we getting that high click-through rates? And no one could tell me. So that's when I started uh, building some tech, uh, just some technology tools to help me collect my own data so I can see what the heck's happening. Because things like Google Analytics, they'll tell you quantities, but they can't really give you enough details for you to figure out why it's happening or where it's coming from. So we built some tech. It's also based on JavaScript so that we can actually go collect some data uh, so we can analyze it. And when you have the data, because uh, you know I'm a scientist, so I, I love data. And when someone tells me, trust us, our number's right, and they don't show me any backup data, uh, I'm not going to trust them. So when we see it in the data, it becomes very obvious. It's common sense, in fact. So when you see a, a website that has 100% Android 8.0.0 traffic, not any other variation of Android and no computers, no iPhones, no iPads or anything, 
humans use all those other devices. They don't just use Android 8.0. So like in this particular case, when we showed that evidence to the client, they said, oh, well, that's kind of obvious, right? How did that get through? Mm -hmm. And so these days, you know, when I help clients, it's like, look at the data. I'll show you the evidence and then they can decide whether they want to keep buying from that site or not. And then they can just choose to turn it off. So I kind of fell into this because I take a scientific approach. And when something doesn't look right, I investigate. Right? And so then once we have the data that uh, we collect ourselves, it becomes very clear you know, where the fraud is or what kind of fraud it is. So you can actually do something about it. So, I mean, that leads nicely into helping me understand then what is the start point then, right? Are you, are you're, you're, there's obviously a huge amount of information that you have to look at, but are you spotting just anomalies and trends? Is that the thing? And that then guides you where to dig in deeper. Like you said, like this doesn't make sense, this bit. Yeah. So you use your own kind of common sense. That's the first filter. Absolutely. Fil- filter, um, you know, look at your own data, right? So first you have to look at your own data. There are too many marketers that don't because they assume their agency took care of it, right? So when the agency sends them rolled up reports in Excel spreadsheets, it'll just say, oh, we bought you this many billion impressions and here's your average click-through rate. That doesn't do anything, right? Um, Because the fraud hides easily in the averages, right? So when you're just getting a rolled up report, you can't tell anything from that. So first step is for marketers to actually look at the details of their own analytics and ask for details in the digital marketing reports that they get back, not a rolled up number by the month or a rolled up number by the day. They need to look at various things like hourly reports. So this was something I published you know, years and years ago in 2013. If you look at the hourly data, you can actually see the botnets at, back at then were not that sophisticated. So it was very clear when something was a bot versus a human because we'll see the same exact amount of traffic every hour of every day, 24 hours straight, okay? That's not human because humans sleep at nights and they don't surf web pages in the middle of the night. So we should see more volume during waking hours when people are actually surfing the web versus in the overnight hours, we should see lower volume. But back then the botnets were not tuned that way. So we could see easily see the same exact kind of like straight horizontal line in hourly metrics. That tells you it's not real, right? So Back then, even just by looking at your own analytics, these were Google Analytics, we could already tell what was bot or not, right? And then now the botnets are smart enough to actually tune down the volume. That's what I was going to ask you. Presumably they figure this stuff out, right? Yeah, I mean, those are things I publish and they read my reports too. So now they're actually faithfully tuning the volume down. But in that case, it's a good thing because they're actually making less money. They have to work harder because now they have to program their botnets to do that and they're making less money. So that's a win for the good guys. Right. So certain things I do publish, other things I don't because I don't want to make it easy for the bad guys to just go, you know, hack their way around something else. Yeah. Actually, on that point, I know you've been hosting a number of briefings, right, with journalists, which I should mention are invitation only, right, because you want to keep the bad guys out exactly to that point so that they don't understand, you know, your your secrets, if you like, uh, or your techniques, What's, what's the purpose of, of those? Because one observation that I have, and you'll see this in the show notes, by the way, and if you want to read the show notes with lots of resources here, you can go to mediasnackpodcast.com 
I mentioned there just how prolific you are at sharing information. I mean, it's an, an altruistic cause you're, you're fighting here, right? You give away a lot. And if anyone wants to follow you, we'll link in the show notes to your LinkedIn and, and social feeds as well, because it's on a daily basis. You're kind of sharing reports, giving away ideas and things to look at. What are you trying to do here? I'm trying to get back to real digital marketing, right? I've been a digital marketer for a very long time. And what we're doing today is not digital marketing, right? It's all messed up by the bots, the fake traffic, the fake impressions, the fake clicks. So we're not even doing real digital marketing. So my hope is that we can all be aware of this issue. We can all look at our own data. We can all take actions ourselves and not be dependent on ad tech companies to do it for us. And then if we can solve fraud, we can go back to real digital marketing. So the reason I call myself a researcher is because, first of all, I see the data, right? It's all very clear as night and day. Uh, But I'm also not a fraud detection technology company because early on when I started building these tools, obviously a thought would be, how do I make money from this? Right? And how do I charge for it? Uh, It could have been to be a fraud detection technology company like the many that are out there right now. But in those cases, uh, there's a built-in conflict of interest because those companies rely on fraud to continue so that they continue to have a business and continue to make more money. So in my case, I call myself a researcher because my objective is to help the clients. And in fact, um, I show them the data, right? The other companies have their secret sauce. They don't want anyone to know, right? Whether it's a good guy or a bad guy, they don't want to talk about it, right? So in those cases, all they will tend to do is tell the client, trust us, our number's correct. Whether it's high or low or whatever, they'll just say, trust us, uh, but they won't show any supporting evidence. What I do is when I show the supporting evidence to the client, because I'm a researcher and I don't have to protect the secret sauce, uh, they'll see it in the data, like that example earlier. You know, you, if you see a site that has 100% Android traffic, something's wrong with that. So then the client will say, oh, now I understand why you're saying it's suspicious or fraudulent. And then they can take the action of simply turning that site off in their uh, campaign. Um, so in that case, uh, you know, when I do measurement for clients, I can't cover the cost of the hosting on AWS, so they tend to help me cover that cost. So we we break out measurement, and they just uh, cover the cost. And then they pay me for my consulting time. And in my work as a digital marketer, I'm mainly a consultant, right? So I get paid for my expertise. So that way, you know, whether it's 9% fraud or 99% fraud, I don't make more money or less money. They just pay me for my expertise. And then I also have the ability to teach them so that they know what to look for, Right. So they don't have to keep paying me. Right. If they can figure out how to uh, do this themselves, like what to look for, where to look for it, they can solve a lot of this fraud themselves using basic common sense. Uh, And then over time, I mean, some of my projects are front loaded in the sense that I help them a lot more in the beginning. But once they're able to do some of these techniques themselves, then they don't need me as much. So, you know, we can tone down the the time that I spend with them and then they can simply escalate the more difficult stuff to me to analyze and look at. And I can talk a little bit about the journalist briefing. A lot of the ad tech writers uh, and journalists in general, they may or may not have a very deep understanding of the technology of ad tech. Sometimes it's from their own research. Sometimes it's what they read. So there are often nuances about the tech that are simply uh, missed. So my purpose in doing these journalist briefings is uh, when they come on, I ask them, sign on with a pseudonym, right? I don't want to know. I don't need to know who they are because the entire briefing is about, uh, it's almost like an AMA, right? Ask me anything. 
People will just ask the question and I will answer the question. It's only about the topic, not who they are. So in that case, journalists can feel free to, you know, uh, ask about some of the harder questions or even basic questions that they don't understand yet. And that's how I can help them so that they can write, uh, you know, better and understand the nuances and report on this important topic better. Yeah, that's, and that's really helpful and uh, well attended. And you're doing more of these. And you, and you can follow that as well. We'll link to your, I think your Twitter is probably the best thing. That's yes. at ACFU, which is A-C-F-O-U. So let's just say, so journalists are right. Let's just say journalists are writing kind of better pieces with your help and you're putting out lots of research. And I'm a marketer. I'm a CMO. Let's just say a big CPG business with a large investment in media. I've seen my digital investment increase over the, over the years. And then I, I start to get interested in this stuff, right? And I'm reading your things. And I hear you say hourly reporting and, you know, all the bad guys. And it's very easy for me to think, I'm just, I'm not even going to open this box, right? This sounds like a huge distraction for me. I know you're probably right. I'm sure it's a risk to my business in the sense that, you know, some money is trickling out to some bad guys, but that's not my problem. That's an industry problem, right? I've got all these agencies and technologies and all these things that I pay for. Like, where would I start? Do you get marketers come to you almost like with paralysis saying, I can't admit that I have a problem, right? You've got to, you've got to kind of reassure me that, I'm not going to go to prison here, or I'm not going to be seen as the kind of guilty party here. Or What's the start point for a senior marketer? There's a couple of things here. Um, so just like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, they, they, their tagline is you have, the only way you can solve the problem is by admitting you have the problem, yeah. right? So first step, so I like would an say, intervention. it's kind of yeah. like an intervention. It's, it's not so much you admit that you have a problem. It's more that you want to find out more to see if you have a problem. I can tell you there are some marketers who are vigilant about this stuff and also knowledgeable about this stuff that don't have a big fraud problem because they are vigilant. Mm. But there's yet a whole lot of other marketers uh, who suffer from FOFO. Right? I call that fear of finding out. So you know FOMO, right? <laughs> yeah. fear of missing out. And that happened a few years ago when they heard about ad tech. They, everyone was rushing into ad tech and programmatic and all that. So fear of missing out drove them to, oh, let's go adopt this as mm. fast as possible. But now they're suffering from FOFO, which is they don't want to find out about the fraud. So the way I help them is let's have a look, right? When I go in there, I can tell you that I see 99% fraud, 100% fraud every day. But that doesn't mean that this particular marketer is going to be affected by that, right? What we need to know is how much fraud actually affects their campaigns. And the only way we can know is by doing some measurement. So what it's typically do for a marketer is let's go take a look, right? Let's put in the JavaScript tag, right? My tag uh, in your ads and or on your websites that click, you know, where the ads click through to. Or if you just tag your ads, we can already get a sense of how well your how clean your campaigns are running. When we tag those ads and we get some data within the first hour of the tag running, I can already show them a first look, right? Because we can see it in the data. It's obvious. Um, when we see in the data, uh, I'll show them, okay, here's the stuff that's going right. And here's the stuff that you really should look into. So it kind of boils down to don't assume, right? Don't assume that everything is fine, even though the agencies keep telling you it's fine, even though the fraud detection technology reports that they get tell you it's fine. Have a look. And when we look, then we know what we, where the fraud is coming from, right? First of all, if there is fraud, 
Then second, where the fraud is coming from and what it is. So that then third, we can go do something about it. So in this case, you know, even if we find there's a lot of fraud, uh, it's not like we're going to wipe it out immediately because the bad guys keep evolving and they keep finding new ways to get around our defenses. So what we typically do is we turn off the most egregious ones first, right? So you've heard me talk about the flashlight app that's generating 60 billion impressions per month. Okay, how is that possible? So in that case, they are an egregious offender. So you turn those off by literally turning them off in your campaign so that you're not wasting money on those first. So it really doesn't matter. You know, there could be 100,000 sites committing fraud, but if one site is only eating 50 impressions, that doesn't matter to your budget, right? But if there's a flashlight app that's eating 50 million impressions, that does matter. That's material. So we turn off those first. And here's another important point, which is we're turning them off while the campaign is running. So I call the other fraud reports uh, post-mortem reports because you typically get them after the campaign is over. So imagine if you had this flashlight app that's eating up 20% of your impressions during the campaign and you don't turn it off, the campaign is going to run very poorly and you won't know that until after the campaign's over when you get the fraud detection technology report, right? So isn't it much better if we can turn that off uh, while the campaign is running and maybe even within the first day of the campaign, right? So just last week, I was working on a case where the top 20 apps combined were eating 68% of this particular movie marketer's budget. So we turned them off in the first day. Imagine if we didn't. So I don't have to know their CPMs. I don't have to know their total budget. They know the percentage of impression volume that was being eaten up by just the top 20 apps. By turning those off while the campaign was running, the rest of the campaign can run more cleanly. Right? So that's how we can have a material impact on the quality of the campaign while it's still going on. So you talked about I mean, the consulting work that you do, which is going to help guide and reassure marketers of things to look for right, and make sure that they're set up for... I was going to say set up for success, but it's just kind of to mitigate failure, let's just say, let's call it the other way around. But then you might be engaged in a real-time basis to help them make some better decisions as they go along. Yeah, that's important because, uh, again, if the marketer doesn't know what to ask, uh, they may be asking that after the campaign's over or when they see, like, here's a fraud report that said everything was fine, but I still got no sales from this, right? So all of that happens too late. Uh, When they need uh, help or when the campaign is running, that's the best time to help. Tell me about the ratios, because I love these kind of numbers. Because when we talk about the scale of this, and I've heard you explain this before, I found that really helpful. Yeah, I talk about 1090 and 199. And if I just talk about those, it's going to be too scary. I don't want to scare the marketers because it may not be that in their own campaigns. So still, it goes back to just measure, take a look at your own campaigns and see how you're affected so you know what to do. And the other thing is I never cite a number like $9 billion or $16 billion because every single one of those numbers is extrapolated from a small slice because those fraud detection technology companies can only see a slice of the universe. They don't see the entire universe. So um, it would be an extrapolation and approximation, so it's not accurate. But some ratios might help you understand the scale of the problem. The 1090 comes from the $100 billion spent in digital in the U.S. alone. That number is $300 billion worldwide. But let's just use the round number of $100 billion here in the U.S. According to Jason Kint over at the DCN, Digital Content Next, um, their mainstream publishers, the big publishers, collectively make about $10 billion 
uh, out uh, in a year. So the 10 billion out of the 100 billion is where I get that 1090, right? So the good publishers, we have some visibility into the revenues that they make, so that's the 10. The other 90, I, all I can say is it goes somewhere else, right? I'm not saying if it's fraudulent or not, it just goes somewhere else. And you can imagine a lot of that flows through Google and Facebook, but because Google has ad tech that is used by hundreds of thousands of sites to run ads, and so does Facebook, right, as part of their Facebook audience network. Those are all things where the money goes into all these long tail sites and through the exchanges, right? So it's just somewhere else, not fraudulent or not, just somewhere else. So that's the dollar ratio, the 1090. Uh, in terms of the impression volume, meaning the quantities of ad impressions, um, there are now trillions upon trillions of ad impressions, whether it's display ads, video ads, and things like that being served every year. I can only say that 1% of that, I'm just using a round number because it probably is 0.001% or something like that, but 199, right? 1% of those ad impressions could possibly be served by the good publishers because they have finite human audiences that generate finite number of page views that therefore generate finite number of ad impressions. They just can't generate that much ad impressions. So uh, that's the 1%. The other 99% is somewhere else. So again, I'm not saying if it's fraudulent or not, it's just somewhere else. And then when you consider two other important ratios, that's the number of domains and the number of apps. So VeriSign uh, tracked the number of domains registered, 330 million domains. So how many of those domains do you think humans actually go to? So I just use a very simple ratio, right? You've heard of the Alexa top million, yeah. right? The Alexa says these are the top million sites by volume. So you can safely say that those are the sites that humans actually go to or have ever heard of. And that includes big porn sites as well, right? So if you take that uh, 1 million, then there's 329 million more, like 300 times more other sites. Again, I don't have to say if it's fraudulent or not. And maybe not all of them carry ads, but those are something else that may or may not have that many humans going to them. But yet, how are they able to generate trillions upon trillions of ad impressions per year? Right? They're probably buying traffic. So that's the uh, site ratio or domains ratio. And then now there's apps. Uh, most people can name up to five pretty quickly, and then they start to struggle sixth, seventh, eighth, right? They can't even get to 10 apps. So there's 7 million apps on Google Play and iTunes combined. Okay, so how many of those do you think humans actually use? So there's been studies by Comscore, by Forrester and all that. And most of those say, you know, humans might have up to 30 apps on their phone at any given time, but they probably use five to eight regularly. Right. And there may be some big hit ones like Pokemon Go or Candy Crush or something, those things that you've heard of over the years. But again, that leaves 6.99 million more apps that nobody's ever heard of. Again, how are they generating all those impressions and selling them into exchanges? As a marketer, it's easy to kind of think, well, you know, I know about the TV stations. I know about magazines. I see them and I know about websites because I see them, you know, like where's all the bad stuff? In the digital world, we don't have the limits of the physical world, right? So just like TV ads, there's a finite number of them. Just like billboards, there's a finite number of them. Just like pages in the magazine, there's finite, right? So in those cases, we actually saw normal economic dynamics, right? When there's more uh, demand and there's limited supply, prices go up. 
right? Think Super Bowl ads. They've kept going up because there's more and more demand going after them. But in digital, the exact opposite has happened for the last 10 years. So the macroeconomic analysis will show you that CPMs and prices have gone down in digital, even though there's a lot more dollars flowing into digital, right? So digital has grown steadily, according to IAB reports, for 15 years because marketers have brought money in from TV and other offline channels into digital. But despite this growth in demand, the prices have still gone down. And that's because the supply has grown even faster. And if you think about, you know, all the Comscore numbers or Pew Internet numbers, um, the number of humans going online has already plateaued many, many years ago. And furthermore, the number of humans using smartphones has plateaued many, many years ago. So the growth rate on those are single digit percentages, if not flat or starting to decline. So that's the humans actually using the Internet and using smartphones. So how is it possible that we're generating so much more inventory, right, in terms of quantities of ad impressions, now video ad impressions, now mobile ad impressions and all this kind of stuff? Again, it just doesn't add up. So, you know, literally, if you just look at some of those numbers, I did that back in 2013. Comscore was showing like maybe two to three percent growth rate in terms of human time on site and things like that. But yet the curve uh, of the ad serve was still a hockey stick, right? It was still going pointing straight upwards. So again, it, it was already obvious years and years ago where the quantities of ad impressions are just completely out of whack from reality in terms of humans actually causing all of those things. A minute ago, you mentioned FAN. So this is the Facebook Audience, audience Network. network. Yeah. Tell me about that. I think I heard you discuss yeah. a case study, like a, was it a music company. Yeah, this is a great example that that small business owner shared with me. It was his example. So um, I'll first set the context by talking about walled gardens, right? You've probably heard that term, walled gardens. And it's basically ad tech uh, trying to blame Google and Facebook for evils because, oh, in the walled gardens, we can't measure stuff and they won't show us stuff and whatever, whatever. But you have to think about the walled gardens uh, in two parts, right? So for Google, you need to think about the part that goes on Google.com. For example, the search ads that load on Google.com, if the ads load and someone clicks on it, Google makes the money. So the kind of fraud bots that we're talking about are not rampant there because they can't make money. Whereas the display network, right, which are basically all the sites outside of Google, but that run Google ad tech to show ads, those sites have a financial motive to increase their own revenues by using bot traffic. So that's where most of the fraud is. So you have to differentiate the part on Google proper versus everything outside. Similarly, on Facebook, you have to separate into two parts. When the ads load on Facebook.com and its app, Facebook makes the money. So these kind of fraud bots are also not going to waste their time there because they can't make money from it. Whereas Facebook Audience Network, similarly, is all the other sites that run Facebook ad tech to show ads. Again, they have the motive and the means to inflate their own ad revenue using fraud. So in that case, um, you know, it's really important when you're doing Google advertising and you're doing search, focus on the main site because then you're going to be far more immune to these kinds of uh, fraud problems. And then when when on Facebook, you also should focus on the main site. This gets us to the story of this small business owner. Uh, He had been doing Facebook advertising by himself for the last five years. And when he first started, you know, he would see uh, click-throughs on his ads come to his website and he could see sales of his music, right? He was a musician. He could sell his music. 
Over the course of the next five years, uh, he saw his number of impressions go up, number of clicks go up, but yet the number of clicks that arrived on his website go down to the point where uh, he reached out for help was when he saw there was a 90% discrepancy. So just using round numbers, uh, the Facebook campaign interface would tell him, oh, we sent you a thousand clicks uh, or you had a thousand clicks on your ads. But in his own Google Analytics on his own site, he only got 100, right, which is a 90% discrepancy. So he couldn't understand what was happening. Long story short is after he uh, told me about the case, I said, I asked him one question. Uh, is the checkbox uh, checked that says, uh, allow my ads on Facebook audience network, which means everything else outside of Facebook? And he said, yes. You know, it's checked by default, obviously. So I just said, uncheck it. And then within the week, the number of impressions cratered, right? It went through the floor. The number of clicks he got cratered. And then the discrepancy between uh, the Facebook campaign interface and his own Google Analytics evaporated, went away. So basically what happened um, was that in the course of that five years, the ratio of his ads that were shown on Facebook itself versus outside had completely flipped. At the beginning, most of, the, most of his ads were shown on Facebook. Right? And then once Facebook rolled out Facebook Audience Network and allowed other people to run ads, uh, by the fifth year, vast majority of his ads were shown outside of Facebook. And that's where all the fraud was. And so even though he might have gotten the clicks or the impressions and all that kind of stuff, it was all fake. So he couldn't get any sales from it anyway. Right? So once we unchecked that checkbox, that meant his ads were shown on the Facebook main property and then also Instagram and things like that. Uh, he was much less at risk of this kind of fraud. And he saw his sales go back up and the discrepancy between the two uh, systems resolve itself. I want to ask you about how that then affects the cost, because that's what a marketer might say, right? So, the, so if there's a ratio in that example, so there's a ratio between Facebook saying you got a thousand clicks and only seeing a hundred actually on his site, and then by making the changes that you recommended, that discrepancy disappears, right? So then I presume in that scenario, Facebook is saying, oh, you got a hundred clicks, and I can see a hundred clicks, but the cost presumably is going up because you're not buying this kind of cheaply subsidized non-existent stuff, exactly. So let me, let me tell you a common question I get asked uh, or claim that marketers uh, like to believe. Uh, they say, oh, well, fraud is priced in. So they'll say that because they used to pay $30 CPMs to good publishers. Now they're paying $3 CPMs on exchanges. So they think, oh, well, my CPMs went down, so I'm okay paying for fraud because it's priced in. But uh, that's a complete misconception because right now they're buying 10 times more volume. So they used to pay $30 and they, they would buy a certain quantity of ads. Now they're paying $3 and they're buying 10 times the quantity. So they didn't save any money, but now they've just exposed themselves to way more risk because the only people who can sell them $3 CPMs are the bad guys, right? Because they, again, like I said earlier, the real publishers have cost of content, right? They have to pay journalists and writers and editors and things like that. Bad guys don't. They can literally make up the inventory out of thin air. So even if they charge $3, they're still profitable. Yeah. So then you're actually exposing yourself to more fraud. The, the whole priced in thing should be thrown out the window right away. And if I hear a marketer say that, I'm definitely not serving them because they don't know what the heck they're doing. Okay, good. Okay, so here's the, here's the killer question then. So it's, it's your money. What would you do? Is go direct, is that the only way to be genuinely reassured 
Yeah, that's a great question. I'm a small business owner and I basically learned all this stuff by doing my own marketing, right? I look at my own Google Analytics, I do my own Facebook marketing, I do my own Twitter marketing. So all of these things I've learned by doing. So if I were given a budget, whether it's a $50 budget or a $50 million budget, right? There are a lot of simplifying things you can do to avoid most of this fraud in the first place. So like I said earlier, if you want to do search advertising, do it on Google and make sure you turn off everything else, right? Don't let your ads go somewhere else. Then you're relatively uh, insulated from the rampant fraud bots because again, if the ad loads on Google, Google makes the money and these fraud bots are not going to spend a lot of time there. If you want to do display ads, do it on Facebook, right? And only allow it on the Facebook main property and in their apps because they have very good audience segments and targeting and things like that. Just don't let your ads outside. If you want to do video ads, um, do it on YouTube, but make sure you select your channels carefully, right? And you either whitelist or blacklist certain things so that you avoid brand safety issues. And so, you know, that those are basic things. But the reason marketers are not doing that these days is because their agencies have convinced them to go after quantity. You're not going to get the vast quantities when you lock it down like this, right? But you are going to get better returns. Because as a small business owner, if I spend $50 and I can't get any return on it, I can't spend the next $50, right? So you have to think like a small business owner and, and manage your money that way. But again, some marketers, like the brand marketers, their sole job is to spend it all. And that's not a good scenario because those are the ones who don't want to hear anything about this fraud stuff because that means, oh, if they find out there's fraud... They have to go figure out how to spend the rest of the money that was given back to them or refunded. So, you know, like I would beg even the brand marketers, you know, look at it. Don't be afraid of finding out because it's better for you to find out now and do something about it rather than wait until your CEO finds out or your CFO finds out and you get fired for not doing anything about it. I mean, we talk about this a lot on the Media Snack YouTube show. Advertisers seeing their media budgets as an investment in growth, right? Not a cost to the business. And when you start to view it as a cost to the business, then you then these are the behaviors that you're talking about, right? Which is that you start at the beginning of the year and you just go, right, hand it off to agencies and vendors and publishers and let's just go kind of get, get rid of it. But if you view it as an investment in growth, then you become more accountable then for the impact that that investment has potentially on the business. So going more direct for a marketer, I can understand that might make a lot more sense. And I think we probably are observing more marketers building more direct relationships with with publishers, right, to understand this and circumvent some of some of these risks. Yeah, what I forgot to say earlier was the go direct part. I was just talking about like the typical, you know, Google uh, search, Facebook display and things like that. But Going direct to the big publishers again, it's almost like buying media as if it were 1995. Yeah. Because back then, you know, there's a lot of these relationships where, for example, humans would go to a Hearst website. And so they had the first party audience. If the marketer then wanted to reach that audience, they would go to Hearst and say, I want to place some ads on your websites. And so they would pay them the media dollars and then give them the creative and Hearst will actually run it. Right. So that's kind of the ideal situation where we want to actually get back to that. Because in the intervening 20 years, right, from 1995 to, say, 2015, ad tech has inserted themselves between the marketer and the publisher. 
And ad tech now promises hyper-targeting, audiences, and all that kind of stuff. But what, in essence, they're doing is basically siphoning dollars to maximize their own profits, right? They're middlemen. And according to the WFA study and an ANA study and, and several others, probably 40 to 60 cents on the dollar actually ends up going through to the publisher for the purpose of showing the ads. The rest goes to the ad tech middlemen as their revenues and profits, right? So if a marketer were to go back to a Hearst, uh, go publisher direct, not only will they reduce the risk of fraud because Hearst is not out to commit fraud, right? Uh, it would also increase the working media, right? More of the dollar goes towards actually showing the ads. So there's two huge benefits to going back direct to the good publishers. And the other thing I can tell you is that over the years, when I've measured these good publishers, they don't have a bot problem. And again, it boils back down to common sense, because if an ad loads on Hearst, Hearst makes the money. So these fraud bots are not going to waste a lot of time loading ads on Hearst, right? They will go spend the time on sites that pay them for the traffic. So consistently over years, uh, these big publishers have less than 1% bot problem, right? There's other stuff going on like crawlers, whatever, but they typically have a very low bot problem. So in that case, when you're buying from these good publishers, you're going to be far more immune to uh, this kind of fraud that we see rampant everywhere else. Yeah. The good news for the marketer, you know, for the many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that these companies kind of invest, trying to get a handle on where money's wasted then allows them to reinvest in the craft or reinvest in the creativity. So as a marketer, this is not all, all bad stuff. It's not, I mean, I appreciate when you say, you know, you need to make sure that you don't get the phone call from your CEO or CFO on this. And that's good, just good diligence in how you manage the, the company's money or the shareholders' money. But also as a marketer, this, is, this could be quite an empowering, albeit it's quite a cathartic process that you go through, but it will give you more marketing dollars to invest in the craft and the creativity in your brands. There's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity here, right, for marketers. Yeah, not, not only better business outcomes, but also the opportunity to invest it correctly. Right. Because right now, you know, I think, you know, you've heard the term simplifying the supply chain. Right. And you've also heard the term, you know, the crime hides in the shadows in in digital marketing. Crime hides in the complexity. Right. So when you have many, many layers of middlemen, you kind of lose track of where things go. Right. Even though you think you have a lot more data and metrics and whatever, all of that can be faked. So you kind of lose track of uh, all, all that in the complexity. So if you can simplify and shorten the supply chain, so literally, like I said before, if you go back to 1995, the marketer paid the good publisher, the good publisher has the audience, right? That's going to work, right? That is the way digital marketing was supposed to be. It's not that right now because there's way too many complexities in there. And because of ad tech and because of the complexities, it has created the opportunity for fraud and it's allowed fraud to continue to flourish. So for the marketers, what they can do is take back control and literally start running their own experiments, start trying these direct media buys. And if they can see it's actually working better or if they can take dollars out of programmatic and see there's no change in business outcomes anyway, whether it was fraud or not, it wasn't working for them anyway. Right. So like you said, there is a huge upside to them, not only for solving fraud and that kind of stuff, but you can now actually focus on your craft actually focus on the thing you make and produce and all that kind of stuff and actually do good advertising. So just like I'm trying to get back to doing real digital marketing, uh, marketers have the opportunity to do that. 
And it won't happen until they ask harder questions and actually start looking at their own data. And so finally, so what change would you like to see in the next 12 months? What are you hoping that we will do now? Um, the main change for the next 12 months, mainly 2019, is for marketers to actually defend the spend, right? So if you see my hashtags, defend the spend, marketers need to ask harder questions, right? So for the, for the last couple of years, I've worked with publishers, and I know the good publishers don't have a big bot problem. But unless and until the marketers do their part, uh, fraud is going to continue. Because as long as marketers just keep handing off dollars to their media agencies, and the media agencies keep buying as much quantity as they possibly can, uh, and they use fraud detection reports to tell them everything's okay, uh, fraud is going to continue. So until and unless the marketers step up and do their part and get over the fofo, and that's a term I borrowed from Mike Donahue, by the way, uh, but get over their own, own fofo and just take a look. And once they do that, then everything else is going to get much better. Dr. Augustine Fu, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. Who would you like to meet on future episodes? Please let us know at mediasnackpodcast.com, where you will also find previous guests, including leading media executives from companies like P&G, L'Oreal, Mars, and many more, plus some of the industry's most provocative thought leaders, people like Professor Mark Ritson and Gary Vaynerchuk. You can subscribe to get new episodes each week. And if you liked this episode and you think somebody else would, then please do share it. Thank you so much for listening. 